The following sermon, entitled The Priesthood of Every Believer, was preached on the morning of November 6, 2022, at Hope Protestant Reformed Church in Redlands, California. If you enjoy listening to our sermons, we encourage you to come worship with us. For more information on upcoming service times and Bible study opportunities, please visit our website at hopeprc.org. Let's open God's Word this morning to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, we will read the whole of the chapter and we do so in connection with Lord's Day 12 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Notice especially the first two verses of Romans 12 as we read the entirety of the chapter. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. For I say through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, and all members have not the same office, so we, being many, are one body in Christ, and every one members one of another. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, whether prophecy, let us prophesy according to the proportion of faith, or ministry, let us wait on our ministering, or he that teacheth on teaching, or he that exhorteth on exhorting, exhortation. He that giveth, let him do it with simplicity. He that ruleth with diligence, he that showeth mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be without dissimulation. Abhor that which is evil. Cleave to that which is good. Be kindly affection one to another with brotherly love, in honor preferring one another. Not slothful in business, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing instant in prayer, distributing to the necessity of saints, given to hospitality, bless them that persecute you, bless and curse not. Rejoice with them that do rejoice and weep with them that weep. Be of the same mind one toward another. Mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. Be not wise in your own conceits. Recompense to no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. Thus far we read God's Word. It's on the basis of this passage and many others that we have the instruction of the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 12. Lord's Day 12. 
Why is He that is the Son of God called Christ that is anointed? Because He is ordained of God the Father and anointed with the Holy Ghost to be our chief prophet and teacher who has fully revealed to us the secret counsel and will of God concerning our redemption and to be our only high priest who by the one sacrifice of His body has redeemed us and makes continual intercession with the Father for us and also to be our eternal King who governs us by His Word and Spirit and who defends and preserves us in the enjoyment of that salvation He has purchased for us. But why art thou called a Christian? Because I am a member of Christ by faith and thus am partaker of His anointing that so I may confess His name and present myself a living sacrifice of thankfulness to Him and also that with a free and good conscience I may fight against sin and Satan in this life, and afterwards reign with Him eternally over all creatures. Each time that we go through the Heidelberg Catechism, there is value in taking one or two Lord's Days and looking at them more closely by means of a mini-series. That is, there are certain Lord's Days that warrant a closer look. There are certain Lord's Days that are worth digging deeper into by having multiple sermons on one specific Lord's Day rather than the usual one sermon on each Lord's Day. And for that reason, we did this the last time we went through the Heidelberg Catechism. Then we spent extra time on Lord's Day 24 as it related the truth of our good works to the truth of our justification. This time through the Heidelberg Catechism, we've decided to settle down on Lord's Day 12. Lord's Day 12 is teaching us about the meaning of that name Christ. That is, the Anointed One. And as we saw last time, it teaches, this name teaches us that our Savior is our prophet, our priest, and our King. That is, in His one office of mediator, there are three aspects to that office. And rather than taking all three aspects of His office and looking at all of them in a single sermon, what we've decided to do is to have at least one sermon on each of the three aspects, prophet, priest, and king. Now notably, there's more to Lord's Day 12 than just what it has to teach us about our Savior and His office. Because Lord's Day 12 not only asks the question, why is He called the Christ, that is, the Anointed, but it also asks the question found in question 32, but why art thou called a Christian? And the Heidelberg Catechism asks this question for good reason. It, it recognizes that the name Christian is clearly derived from the name Christ. It's indicating that I'm a follower of a Christ. And it's wondering, is there any special significance to this? Is there important meaning here? And it's a good question because there indeed is special meaning to that name Christian because it teaches us that even as Christ is anointed, so too we are made partakers of His anointing. And thus, we are made prophets, priests, 
and kings. And we need to do justice to the second half of Lord's Day 12. And that's where this sermon comes in. It's my original plan in deciding to have a mini-series on Lord's Day 12 to have one sermon on each of the three aspects of the office, starting with priest and then king and then prophet. Last time we started with priest, but along with explaining the priestly aspect of Christ's office, we had to first lay all the groundwork of the idea of Christ being anointed. And because all of that groundwork was a part of it, we didn't have time to get into how we then are also made priests. And so this sermon, we come back to the idea of the priestly aspect of the office. And this time, see how we too are made priests. Lord willing, when we come to the kingly and prophetic aspects of the office, then we can have just one sermon on them. But with this one, we need two. So this morning, we consider the priesthood of every believer. The priesthood of every believer. First, we'll look at how we are partaking of Christ's anointing. Second, presenting ourselves as sacrifice. And third, consecrating others to Christ. The priesthood of every believer. First, partaking of Christ's anointing. Second, presenting ourselves as sacrifices. And third, consecrating others to Christ. As Christians, we are partakers of Christ's anointing. That's the language we find in answer 32. Why art thou called a Christian? Because I'm a member of Christ by faith and thus am partaker of His anointing. There's two phrases there. We're more interested in the second phrase, but the first phrase is more basic. It begins with saying, because I'm a member of Christ by faith. That's the reason I'm a Christian. That's the reason I'm a called a Christian. And with this language, we're reminded of the truth of Lord's Day 7. How we've been engrafted into Jesus Christ by faith. That Lord's Day taught us that We have Christ, the Spirit of Christ has established a living connection between Jesus Christ and His people so that we've been taken out of that dead stump of Adam and engrafted into the living vine that is Jesus Christ. And we come to know and to experience that union with Jesus Christ by means of faith. It is by means of embracing Christ as our Savior. Lord's Day 7, or sorry, Lord's Day 12 is teaching us the same basic truth when it says that we are members of Christ by faith. It's drawing from Romans chapter 12, for example. Romans chapter 12, verses 4 and 5, for as we have many members in one body, and all members have not the same office. So we being many are one body in Christ, every one members of another. So we have this language of us being members and clearly implied in what's part of the teaching of Scripture is that Christ is our head. And what this is reminding us of is that whole idea of the fact that we are united to Jesus Christ. We're members of Christ by faith. 
But while we could spend a whole sermon explaining that idea of Christ being our head, us being members of His body by faith, that's not our main interest this morning. Our main interest is that second phrase that because we are members of Christ by faith, the implication, the significance of that is we are therefore partakers of His anointing. That's the second phrase. Because I am a member of Christ by faith and thus am partaker of His anointing. That is, just as we learned last week that Christ is the anointed One, because we are united to Him, because we are connected to Him as members of His body, united to our head, because He was anointed, we are therefore partakers of His anointing. That is, we share in that anointing. And this is a part of what Scripture teaches us, that we too have been anointed. This is the teaching of 1 John chapter 2, verse 20, for example. There we read, but ye have an unction from the Holy One, where that word unction means anointing. Later on in the same chapter in verse 27, we read, but the anointing which ye have received of Him abideth in you. So this is even clear. We've received an anointing, and that anointing has come from Him, from our Savior. That is, we are made partakers of His anointing. And we have a beautiful illustration of this in the anointing of Aaron, the high priest. We looked at that last week when we considered the whole idea of being anointed and how Aaron was put into office and how Moses took oil and poured it upon Aaron's head. And what's especially noteworthy for the sermon this morning is that oil that was poured on Aaron's head was then allowed to run down to the rest of his body, all the way down to the skirt, the the bottom of his garment. That's what we're taught in Psalm 133. Psalm Psalm 133 verses 1 and 2 says this, Behold how good and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious ointment upon the head that ran down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, that went down to the skirts of his garments so that the anointing oil applied to Aaron's head was allowed to flow all the way down to the rest of the body. And I say again, this is a picture of the truth we're explaining right now. We are partakers of Christ's anointing. He is our head. And as our head, He was anointed. He received the Holy Spirit. But now that same Spirit given to Christ flows from Christ down to the rest of us. Down to all who are members of His body so that we receive that same Spirit and we are therefore partakers of His anointing. Now consider what that means for us. It means that as God's people, we too are given an office and gifts to function in that office. Because remember, that's the meaning, that's the significance of the whole idea of anointing. That was the meaning for Aaron. When someone's anointed on the pages of Scripture, it means they are appointed to a certain office. That is, they're 
they're ordained into an office, and along with that, they're qualified for that office. They're equipped for that office by being given gifts. And that's even the idea of Christ being anointed. He was appointed, ordained from all eternity to be our mediator. And in time, at His baptism, He was equipped, He was given extraordinary gifts to fulfill the work of that office. Well, since that's the idea of anointing and we are partakers of His anointing, it means those same two things apply to us. We're given an office and we're given the gifts to fulfill that office. We're appointed. We're ordained. We're authorized, given the right to function as servants of our Savior Jesus Christ. And more specifically, because His office has three parts, prophet, priest, and king, so too our office has three parts. We are prophets, priests, and kings. And that's what Lord's Day 12, question and answer 32 is teaching us. But why art thou called a Christian? Because I'm a member of Christ by faith and thus am partaker of His anointing. We've explained that. And now we're noting the significance. And what the catechism does here is speaks of the work connected with each of those three aspects of the office without mentioning them by name. But each of them is clearly implied. For it says, that so I may confess His name. And the idea is that I may confess His name as a prophet. We are made prophets. And then it adds, and also, and present myself a living sacrifice of thanksgiving to Him. And understood as, as priests, because we too are made priests. That's what a priest does. And then it goes on to talk about the kingly aspect of our office, that with a free and good conscience I may fight against sin and Satan in this life, and afterwards reign with Him eternally over all creatures. So we've been appointed. We've been ordained into the office. The office of believer as we call it in Reformed theology with its three parts. But not only are we appointed to the office, we're equipped for it. We're given the, the gifts that we stand in need of. For we've been given the Spirit of Christ. He's been poured out upon us. Not to the same degree with Christ. He was given to Christ without measure, but nevertheless, that same Spirit is given to us in abundance. And that Spirit enables us, He empowers us to go about our work as prophets, priests, and kings. He takes us who were unfit for the work and gives us the will and the power to do the work of each of these three offices. And now what's noteworthy is that everything we've just said about believers occupying this office that has these three parts is true of every single true child of God. For every member of the body of Christ. And we say that in light of what Scripture teaches us that the Spirit of Christ is given to all of God's people. It's what we learn when we look at that history in Acts chapter 2 and the events of Pentecost. After the Spirit is poured out upon the church at Pentecost, Peter gets up and preaches his sermon. And as a part of his sermon, he explains that these events that you've just seen 
are the fulfillment of what we read in Joel chapter 2, verse 28. And Joel 22, verse 28, that prophecy reads, and it shall come to pass afterward, I will pour out My Spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions, and also upon the servants and upon the handmaids in those days, I will pour out My Spirit. And what's so notable about that prophecy it's saying is that it is saying, well, the Spirit, the pouring out of the Spirit in the Old Testament was reserved for the office bearers. That's not going to be true moving forward. The Spirit's going to be poured about poured out upon all the members of the church. Not just office bearers, but young and old, men and women, servants and masters. We're all given the Spirit. And because we're all given the Spirit, it means we're all partakers of Christ's anointing. We're all given this office of believers so that it does not matter what gender we may have, what social status we may have, what our income is, what color of skin we have, or what language we might speak. But every believer is given this threefold office. This is one of the truths that was recovered during the time of the Reformation in the 16th century. And it needed to be recovered because the Roman Catholic Church had a view of the church and the members of the church that disparaged the ordinary members of the church. The Roman Catholic Church said that the church is fundamentally the, the clergy, the office bearers, and well, the members, what we call the laity. According to the Roman Catholic Church, they really have no role, no place, no function so that the members of the church were essentially brushed aside in the Roman Catholic Church. In response to that, the Reformers went back to Scripture and said, no, the church is not fundamentally the clergy, but it's, it's the elect body of Christ. It's all the members and every single member is given the Spirit. Every single member has an office in the church. Now, that's not a contradiction to the fact that there are office bearers, men who are given positions of authority, but at the very same time, every single child of God is given this office of believer with its three parts of prophet, priest, and king. And consider what that means for you, child of God. It means there's no sort of rank or hierarchy in the church. It's not the case that the office bears, they're the ones who are important to Christ, but everyone else, well, not much you can say about them as far as their place, their function. That's not the case. Because in light of what we've learned, we see that every single member in the body of Christ is important to Christ as a member of His body. And each one of us is given an an important place in the church and we're given gifts to function in that place in the church. And all that's true because as Christians, we are members of Christ by faith and because we are members of Christ by faith, we are partakers of His 
anointing. But now having established that basic truth, we want to zero in on one of those three aspects of this office of believer, namely the fact that we are priests and as priests, we are to present ourselves as sacrifices to our God. That's what we want to look at in the second point. For a part of this office of believer includes the fact that we are made priests. That's what Scripture itself teaches us, especially in 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter 2, verse 5, we read, Ye also, as living stones, are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. And what's notable about this passage is that it's not addressed to office bearers, but it's addressed to all of the elect who are scattered throughout the land. And it says to all of them, you are part of this holy priesthood. It expresses the same truth later on in the same chapter in verse 9. 1 Peter 2, verse 9, but ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. We are a part of a priesthood. Unless it's not just by implication that we're saying we're all priests. The implication is, well, Christ was priest. If we're partakers of His anointing, therefore we must be priests. That logic is sound, but it's stronger than that. Scripture itself is telling us we are all priests. And as priests, we are to present ourselves as living sacrifices unto our God. That's the main work that's set before us in this aspect of our office. And again, that's what Scripture teaches us. That's the idea expressed in 1 Peter 2, verse 5. We read a moment ago, ye also as living stones are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. As priests, our calling is that we offer up spiritual sacrifices to our God. Similar ideas expressed in Hebrews 13, verses 15 and following. By Him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to His name. As priests, we offer sacrifices. And that's the truth expressed in Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. Romans 12, verse 1, really. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And it's on the basis of these passages and others that we see the catechism is giving us a faithful summary when in answer 32, it identifies our main work as priests. We mentioned it a moment ago, but now notice it in light of the passages that we just read. Answer 32 tells us that we are partakers of His anointing, that so I may confess His name. That's the prophetic aspect. But now here comes the priestly aspect of our office. And present myself a living sacrifice of thankfulness to Him. Catechism's drawing from Scripture. 
But what's important about this language is that by putting it the way that it does, it makes very clear the distinction between our sacrifice and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. For the catechism, drawing from Scripture, says that we present ourselves as living sacrifices. Living sacrifices. That is, when we sacrifice ourselves, it's not that we are slaughtered, our blood is shed, and we're thrown upon an altar and our bodies are burned. We're living sacrifices, indicating that our sacrifice is not meant to make an atonement for our sins. That also comes out when the catechism, drawing from Scripture, says that we present ourselves living sacrifices of thankfulness. Of thankfulness to Him. And what the catechism is doing is recognizing that in the Old Testament, there were really two main categories of sacrifices. There were the bloody sacrifices that involved the giving of a life and the laying of a a body on the altar to be burned, but there was There was another category of sacrifices that were not bloody that involved the bringing forward of the fruits of the harvest or some other gift. There's no bloodshed there. These are thank offerings as opposed to burnt offerings. And the catechism is saying when we present ourselves as offerings, it's not in the category of a burnt offering, but in the category of a a thank offering. Again, saying it's not meant to atone for our sins. Which is teaching us our sacrifice, the offering we bring, is fundamentally different than the offering of Jesus Christ. His alone was the atonement, the propitiation for our sins. That we bring our offering is in no way implying or indicating that there was something deficient about Christ's sacrifice. That we have to to make a little part a little bit of the payment ourselves for His perfect sacrifice. Satisfied fully God's justice against our sins. He atoned for our sins. And thus, our offering is a thank offering that's pleasing to God only for the sake of Christ's perfect atoning offering. So thus far, we've established in the second point, we are priests. And according to Scripture, the main work that we perform as priests is that we present a spiritual sacrifice. We we bring ourselves as an offering. But now we want to look more closely at what does that mean and what does that look like? And to start with the general idea, we present ourselves as living sacrifices by living a life of devotion, dedication to our God. Because remember, the overarching idea of the work of the priest is that he was the one who consecrates, dedicates the people unto God. He does that in two different ways, by making sacrifices and by intercession. But both of those aspects of his work were a part of consecrating the people unto God so that the fundamental idea of a priest is that there's this, there's this devotion, this dedication unto our God. And thus, when Scripture calls us to present ourselves as sacrifices, the idea then is that we are to consecrate, devote, dedicate our 
ourselves to God. We're to live for God. And Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, teaches us more specifically what that looks like. Romans 12, verses 1 and 2 teaches us in the first place that this means dedicating our entire being unto God, including our bodies. And that comes out from the specific language in verse 1. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present, and now what we're expecting is that you present yourselves or your whole life unto God. But interestingly, what we read is that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice to God. Why does Paul put it that way? Why does he say bodies? Well, most likely, he is countering the pagan thinking that those to whom he was first addressing this epistle had come out of. The pagan thinking was that the gods up there are really only interested in your soul. They don't really care about your body. You can do whatever you want with your body as long as you give them their... Give them your soul. But over against that, Paul says, we are to present, ourself, to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, indicating that the one true living God is interested in more than just your soul. He's interested in the whole of your being, in your body too. So that when Paul speaks of presenting our bodies, it's not to the exclusion of the soul, but it's to emphasize the totality of this sacrifice that we're to give ourselves body and soul unto our God. And perhaps that's an important reminder for us. Because perhaps we too can fall into that same wrong thinking that God just cares about my soul and I can do whatever I want with my body. I can eat as much or as little as I want. I can exercise as much as I want, making an idol out of it. Or I can not exercise at all so as to neglect my physical body. But the teaching of Scripture is that we are to present our bodies as a part of this sacrifice to give the whole of our being unto God so that not just with our souls, but with our bodies we are serving Him. The first is what Romans 12, verses 1 and 2 teach us about the, the character of this sacrifice we are to bring. Second, it reminds us that this life of dedication to God means being different than the world around us. And we say that in light of verse 2. Verse 2 is a further explanation of what it means to present ourselves as living sacrifices. And it begins by saying, and be not conformed to this world. And by telling us that, it's reminding us that if we are going to live a life of dedication and devotion unto God, well, that means we need to be separated, distinct from the wicked world around us because those two things are polar opposites. The very opposite of Living a life of consecration unto God is seeking to blend in with the world, to be just like the world. Instead of that, we're to live our lives for God, not being conformed to the world around us. 
Third, this passage teaches us about this sacrifice that it includes renewed thinking. That is, uh, dedicating our thoughts unto God. Because verse 2 continues, and be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. As Christians, our minds are are to be renewed. That is, our thinking as Christians should be totally different than the thinking of the world around us. And for this to be given as a part of the explanation for how we are to present ourselves as living sacrifices unto God is teaching us that we are to give not just our bodies to God, not just our deeds to God, not just our words, but even our thoughts. Even the the desires of our heart. All of it is to be lived for God. So that as Christians, we take every thought captive to the will of our God. So what does this sacrifice look like? It means a life of dedication to our God that includes presenting our bodies, our whole selves. It means being different than the world around us. It means having renewed minds. And fourth and finally, this passage teaches us that we need to give up things as a part of this life of consecration to God. Because the language is that we present ourselves as a living sacrifice. That word sacrifice implies this is costly. This is going to require that we give up things that we might like or give up things that we deem to be valuable. That is, we must be willing to give up certain things such as pet sins, earthly respectability, certain comforts, or even things that are legitimate in and of themselves, but that we find we have a tendency to make an idol out of this thing. And because I can't keep it in its proper place, and every time I I go to that thing, I make an idol out of it, even though it's legitimate, I have to put it away. Make a sacrifice in order as a part of a life of devotion, dedication unto God. So God's Word teaches us that we are to present our bodies, our whole selves, as a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God. Is that what your life looks like? What about mine? Are we living for God. Or are we just living for ourselves? So that it's all about my kingdom, my power, and my glory. And that everyone else should be concerned about me and serving me and being dedicated to me. If we're honest with ourselves, by nature we always want the latter. 
And thus we need this Word to live for God. But there is the question, what then is ever going to motivate us to present ourselves, to present our bodies as a living sacrifice to God? Well, the answer of the text is that what's going to drive this, what's going to motivate us in this, is the mercy of our God. Notice how Paul introduces this instruction in Romans 12, verse 1. I beseech you therefore, brethren, and then he doesn't just go right into saying, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, but he says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. That is, the Apostle Paul is holding up the mercies of God as the reason why we would ever present ourselves as a living sacrifice. And he's able to do this because he spent the last 11 chapters exclaiming the mercies of God towards us. The mercy of God in choosing us to be His elect people before we were ever born. Before we had ever done anything good or bad, God chose us in eternity. That's a part of His mercy towards us. His mercy includes sending His Son to be the sacrifice for our sins, to make atonement, to, to pay the debt that we owe by His shed blood. The mercy of God includes the fact that we are justified. That God has imputed that righteousness of Christ to us so that we're declared right with God. We're made acceptable before our God. This mercy includes the fact that we've been given new life. We've been delivered from the power, the dominion of sin and Satan and given the life of Christ. So when Paul speaks of the the mercies of God, he's talking about the, the fullness of our salvation. The fact that Jesus Christ has come into this world to save wretched sinners to deliver us from our sin and misery and to give us all of the, the blessings of salvation. And it's with all of that in mind, everything he said in the past 11 chapters that the Apostle Paul comes to a climax and says what he does at the beginning of chapter 12, verse 1, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice that is out of gratitude, out of thankfulness for for all that He's done for you. Live for Him. Dedicate the whole of your life to Him. And is that not reasonable? It is. And that's what the text itself teaches us at the very end of verse 1. For after telling us to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, the Spirit leads Paul to add, which is your reasonable service? If you stop and truly think about the mercies of God towards us and all that Christ has done for us, this is not asking too much. This is not going over the top. This is not being too demanding. But this is reasonable. Because Christ gave His life for you. And therefore, it's reasonable that out of gratitude, we now give ourselves to Him. 
And that means if we are not living this way, if we are not presenting ourselves as living sacrifices unto our God, then what we need is to go back to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We need to go back to the previous sermon and stand at the foot of the cross and see Him giving His life for us. Allowing His blood to be shed. Giving everything for our salvation. Because when our hearts are fixed on that, we will agree with Scripture, this is our reasonable service. That I now give myself as a sacrifice to God. That's our main calling as priests of our God. But it's not the only calling. Because not only are we to present ourselves as sacrifices unto God, we also have a calling toward one another. That is, we have the calling of consecrating each other unto our God and unto Jesus Christ. And this calling towards one another flows out of the fundamental idea of being a priest. For as we've already reminded ourselves in the sermon, the idea of a priest is that he was a representative of the people who was called to consecrate, to dedicate the people unto God. And certainly that meant he himself had to be consecrated unto God. That's why Aaron has to make sacrifices for himself. And there's this ram of consecration and blood being applied to Aaron directly. But there was also the calling with respect to the rest of the body. And because we are all priests, we have this same calling with respect to the body. Now to be clear, the way we are to consecrate each other unto God is different than the way Christ does it as our perfect mediator. And it's even different than the calling of the office bears in the church. But nevertheless, there is to be a concern as priests for the rest of the body. And is that not what Romans 12 has taught us? Romans 12 reminds us in verse 5 that we being many are one body in Christ and everyone members one of another. We're all joined together. We're all connected together as a part of the body of Christ. And thus we're to use the gifts that God gives us for the other members. That's what follows in verses 6 and following. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, whether prophecy, let us prophesy according to the proportion of faith, or ministry, let us wait on our ministry, or he that teacheth on teacheth, or he that exhorteth on exhortation. So that what this is teaching us is that we're to have a concern for the rest of the body. And that's a part of our calling as priests. We're to consecrate each other to Christ. That is, we are to take one another and constantly be leading each other back to our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we do this in two main ways. First, 
we consecrate others unto Christ by our intercession. By praying for each other. Because remember, a priest does more than make sacrifices. He also intercedes. He's praying on behalf of the people. He's taking their names, their needs, and carrying them into the presence of God. That's what Paul does again and again. He's an example to us in his epistles that he writes. How does he begin almost every single one of them? I'm praying for you. I never cease to forget to give thanks to God for you. And I I pray this on your behalf. And then he, he tells them what he's praying for them. He's functioning as a priest. He's, he's interceding for the people. And we see this even when we look at the Old Testament priests. For example, when we look at Samuel. Godly Samuel, even after the people had rejected him by demanding a king, Samuel says to the people, Moreover, as for me, God forbid that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you. Samuel the priest says it would be sin against God if I stopped praying for you, if I stopped interceding for you. This is a part of our calling. To pray for one another. To take the names and the needs of other members in the body of Christ and to bring those to our God. Is this something we do? The question is not, do we pray? But more specifically, is a regular part of our prayers that we pray for the other members in the body of Christ. It doesn't have to be every single prayer. In a moment of temptation, you can pray a specific prayer for yourself. Lord, deliver me from this temptation. But what we're saying is that a regular part of our prayers in general should include this element. That we're not just focused on our own needs in prayer, but that we are also thinking about one another. And one tool that you can use in this respect is the church directory. One pastor, I don't even remember where I read this, but one pastor said there are two books that are so important for every church. The Bible and the church directory. Because it reminds us about all the other members in the body and it's It's a worthwhile practice to open that directory and to pray through it. Not the whole thing all at once. That would take longer than most of us have time for, but a couple of names here and there. Because as partakers of Christ's anointing, we are priests. And a part of the work of priests is that we are to consecrate each other unto our God by interceding on one another's behalf. That's the first way, by means of intercession. Second, we do this by spiritual encouragement. 
And this is needed. Because the reality is that as members of the body, we often grow weak, feeble. We become discouraged. And at times, we can become so low that we reach the point that we can't get ourselves out of it. We, we, we need someone else to come and to help us. That is, we need our fellow priests to give spiritual encouragement. This is a part of our calling so that we take not just the name and the needs of people and bring them to God in prayer, but we take that person, we grab him and him or her by the hand, and we we carry them, we, we lead them, we consecrate them unto Christ by pointing that person back to the Savior. This is what Jonathan did for his friend David. David's out in the wilderness. He's on the run for his life from Saul. And Jonathan comes and strengthens his hand in God. This is evidently what Onesiphorus did for Paul. Paul says about Onesiphorus in one of his epistles, how he's often refreshed me. And thus this is to be something that we too engage in. Because we all need it. Even your office bears. Did you notice that in those two examples? David. Paul. Spiritual giants needing to be strengthened in the Lord, refreshed in the Lord. Yes. And so too to the deacons, the elders, and your pastor, and everyone else. And thus, it's important that as priests, we seek to consecrate others to Christ in this way too, by giving them the spiritual encouragement we need. Taking the things that have been an encouragement to us and sharing them with others. This passage has been comforting to me. It's been helpful for me. And I hope it's helpful for you too. By reminding each other of the the mercies of God that we talked about a moment ago. The mercies of God toward us in Jesus Christ. And ultimately, we do this by pointing one another back to the One who is our only High Priest, our Chief Prophet, and our Eternal King. Let us grab one another by the hand, as it were, and bring each other to Him. Amen. Father, we thank Thee for Thy mercies towards us in Jesus Christ. Fill our hearts with thankfulness for them. And may that thankfulness come to expression in a life lived for Thee so that we present our bodies as living sacrifices unto Thee, our God. Grant Thy grace 
Fill us with Thy Spirit to this end. And hear this prayer for Jesus' sake. Amen.